0: This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Lumley. Hello, welcome to another edition of Witnesses of History, and this time we're focusing on American landings, starting off with the United States Marines landing on Tarawa on the 20th of November 1943. And then from November in 1620 we have an account of the Mayflower landing in New England and a century later uh, an undated account as Chateaubriand lands in the New World in Chesapeake Bay in 1791. Well, the successful assault on the Japanese defences on Tarawa in the Gilbert Islands cost the U.S. Marines 3,300 in killed and wounded. Robert Sherrod reports. Another young Marine walked briskly along the beach. He grinned at a pal who was sitting next to me. Again, there was a shot. The Marine span all the way round and fell to the ground dead. From where he lay, a few feet away, he looked up at us. Because he had been shot squarely through the temple, his eyes bulged out wide, as in horrible surprise at what had happened to him, though it was impossible that he could ever have known what hit him. "'Somebody go get the son of a bitch,' yelled Major Crow. He's right back of us here, just waiting for somebody to pass by. That Jap sniper, we knew from the crack of his rifle, was very close.' A marine jumped over the seawall and began throwing blocks of fused TNT into a coconut log pillbox about 15 feet back of the seawall against which we sat. Two more marines scaled the seawall, one of them carrying a twin-cylinder tank strapped to his shoulders, the other holding the nozzle of the flamethrower. As another charge of TNT boomed inside the pillbox, causing smoke and dust to billow out, a khaki clad figure ran out the side entrance. The flamethrower, waiting for him, caught him in its withering stream of intense fire. As soon as it touched him, the Jap flared up like a piece of celluloid. He was dead instantly, but the bullets in his cartridge belt exploded for a full 60 seconds after he'd been charred, almost to nothingness. Well, after that short but definitely long enough account of the goings-on in 1944, let's go back 320 years almost, to William Bradford's account of landing in New England, which had been named by Captain John Smith, who explored its shores in 1614. The first permanent settlement was made at Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620 by the Plymouth Fathers aboard the Mayflower, and it's their arrival that is described here. One day in November, 1620. About ten o'clock we came into a deep valley full of brush, wood gale and long grass, through which we found little paths or tracks, and there we saw a deer, and found springs of fresh water of which we were heartily glad, and sat us down and drunk our first New England water, with as much delight as ever we drunk drink in all our lives. When we had refreshed ourselves we directed our course full south, that we might come to the shore which within a short while after we did, and there made a fire, that they and the ship might see where we were, as we had direction, and so marched on towards this supposed river, and as we went in another valley we found a fine clear pond of fresh water, being about a musket shot broad and twice as long. There grew also many small vines, and fowl and deer haunted there. There grew much sassafras, From thence we went on and found much plain ground, about fifty acres, fit for the plough, and some signs where the Indians had formerly planted their corn. After this some thought it best, for nearness of the river, to go down and travail on the sea sands, by which means some of our men were tired, and lagged behind, so we stayed and gathered them up, and struck into the land again, where we found a little path to certain heaps of sand, one whereof was covered with old mats, and had a wooden thing like a mortar, whelmed on the top of it and an earthen pot laid in a little hole at the end thereof we musing what it might be digged and found a bow and as we thought arrows but they were rotten we suppose that there were many other things but because we deemed them graves we put in the bow again and made it up as it was and left the rest untouched because we thought it would be odious unto them to ransack their sepulchres We went on further and found new stubble of which they had gotten corn this year, and and many walnut trees full of nuts, and great store of strawberries, and some vines. Passing thus a field or two, which were not great, we came to another, which had also been new gotten, and there we found where a house had been, and four or five old planks laid together. Also we found a great kettle which had been some ship's kettle, and brought out of Europe. There was also a heap of sand made like the former, but it was newly done. We might see how they had paddled it with their hands, which we digged up, and in it we found a little old basket full of fair Indian corn, and digged further, and found a great new basket full of very fair corn of this year, with some six-and-thirty goodly ears of corn, some yellow and some red, and others mixed with blue, which was a very goodly sight. The basket was round and narrow at the top. It held about three or four bushels which was as much as two of us could lift up from the ground, and was very handsomely and cunningly made. But whilst we were busy about these things, we set our men sentinel in a ring, round ring, all but two or three which digged up the corn. We were in suspense what to do with it, and the kettle, and at length, after much consultation, we concluded to take the kettle and as much of the corn as we could carry away with us, and when our shallop came, If we could find any of the people and come to parley with them, we would give them the kettle again and satisfy them for their corn. When we had marched five or six miles into the woods and could find no signs of any people, we returned again another way, and as we came into the plain ground, we found a place like a grave, but it was much bigger and longer than any we had yet seen. It was also covered with boards so as we mused what it should be and resolved to dig it up where we found first a mat and under that a fair bow and then another mat and under that a board about three quarters long finally carved and painted with three tines or brooches on the top like a crown also between the mats we found bowls trays dishes and other such like trinkets. At length we came to a fair new mat, and under that two bundles, the one bigger, the other less, we opened the grater, and found in it a great quantity of fine and perfect red powder, and in it the bones and skull of a man. The skull had fine yellow hair still on it, and some of the flesh unconsumed. There was bound up with a knife, a pack needle, and two or three old iron things. It was bound up in a sailor's canvas cassock and a pair of cloth breeches. The red powder was a kind of embalmment, embalment, and yielded a strong but not offensive smell. It was as fine as any flower. We opened the less bundle likewise, and found of the same powder in it, and the bones and head of a little child. About the legs and other parts of it was bound strings and bracelets of fine white beads. There was also by it a little bow, about three quarters long, and some other odd knacks. We brought sundry of the prettiest things away with us and covered the corpse up again. We went ranging up and down till the sun began to draw low, and then we hasted down to the woods that we might come to our shallop. By that time we had done, and our shallop come to us as it was within night and we fed upon such victuals as we had and betook us to our rest after we had set out our watch about midnight we heard a great and hideous cry and our sentinel called arm arm so we bestirred ourselves and shot up a couple of muskets and noise ceased we concluded that it was a company of wolves and foxes for one told us he had heard such a noise in newfoundland "'About five o'clock in the morning we began to be stirring. "'Upon a sudden we heard a great and strange cry, "'which we knew to be the same voices, "'though they varied their notes. "'One of the company being abroad come running to us and cried, "'There are men, Indians, Indians!' "'And withal their arrows came flying amongst us. "'Our men ran out with all speed to recover their arms.' The cry of our enemies was dreadful, especially when our men ran out to recover their arms. Their note was after this manner, Wah, blah, 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 blah. Our men were no sooner come to their arms, but the enemy was ready to assault them. There was a lusty man, and no whit lesser valiant, who was thought to be their captain, stood behind a tree within half a musket shot of us, and there let his arrows fly at us. "'He stood three shots off a musket. "'At length one took, as he said, full aim at him, "'after which he gave an extraordinary cry. "'And away they went all. "'We followed them about a quarter of a mile, "'but we left six to keep our shallop, "'for we were careful of our business. "'We took up eighteen of their arrows, "'which we had sent to England by Master Jones. "'Some whereof we were headed with brass, "'others with hart's horn, and others with eagle's claws. "'Many more, no doubt, were shot.' for these we found were almost covered with leaves, yet by the special providence of God, none of them either hit or hurt us. On Monday, we found a very good harbour for our shipping. We marched also into the land and found diverse cornfields and little running brooks, a place very good for situation. So we returned to our ship again with good news to the rest of our people, which did much comfort their hearts. Finally this time we have uh, one more landing in the New World. This time is from spring in 1791 by Francois Rene de Chateaubriand, who left France because of the revolution and sailed for America in the spring of 1791. This is his landing sometime later that year. We walked towards the nearest house. Woods of balsam trees and Virginian cedars, mockingbirds and cardinal tanagers, proclaimed by their appearance and shade, their song and colour, that we were in a new clime. The house, which we reached after half an hour, was a cross between an English farmhouse and a West Indian hut. Herds of European cows were grazing in pastures surrounded by fences on which striped squirrels were playing. African slaves were soaring up logs of woods while the whites were tending tobacco plants. A negress, 13 or 14 years old, practically naked and singularly beautiful, opened the gate to us like a young knight. We bought some cakes of Indian corn, chickens, eggs and milk and returned to the ship with our demijohns and baskets. I gave my silk handkerchief to the little African girl. It was a slave who welcomed me to the soil of liberty. Well, thank you for listening to those three very different readings by Witnesses of History, and I hope you'll join me again next time. have been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias, www.soundimage.org.